It's Thursday, January 23rd, 2020. From KLCC News, this is the Northwest Passage. A court panel dismisses the kids' climate lawsuit. People rally for and against President Trump and Eugene. U of O and OSU women's basketball teams will face off this weekend, with national attention largely on superstar duck Sabrina Unescu. And we talk Oregon tornadoes, Mr. Peanut, and the odd rules for decorum on the Senate floor during the impeachment trial. These stories and more on this episode of the Northwest Passage podcast. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Northwest Passage podcast. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. And I'm news reporter Brian Bull. And I am Weekend Edition and Morning Edition host and sometimes reporter Love Cross. And I'm reporter Chris Lehman. This week, we've been carrying live coverage of the Senate impeachment hearing of President Donald Trump here on KLCC, but there's still a lot of local news, and the KLCC team is on it. Brian, you had a busy Saturday with a sort of sidewalk rally that was held by Trump supporters and counter-demonstrators here in Eugene. Tell us about it. That is correct, Rachel. Uh, Late last week, there were announcements made on Facebook and other social media, I'm sure. Uh, First, we had Oregonians for Trump announcing a rally at 2 o'clock near the Ferris Street Bridge area, which is just uh, off of Coburg and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. And uh, within a couple hours, there was a competing counter-rally announced by Oregonians against Trump. Who knew? Uh, That was for the same time and location. So I trekked out there in the early afternoon just making sure I had parking, but Already people were gathered there at 1230, uh, well ahead of advance, and that's when the uh, rancor started early, too. Um, There were police on hand. Uh, The Argonians for Trump were mostly on a kind of a muddy, grassy meridian off of Coburg Road, a little grassy triangle with a bus stop. I think we've all passed by that. And Argonians against Trump, uh, they were mostly on the MLK Jr. Boulevard side, just outside of a car dealership. And I would say of the 100 people there, it was more or less roughly split between the two groups. Um, One side uh, unfurled Trump 2020 banners and signs. People were wearing American flags as capes. And there were a few open carry advocates walking around with firearms at their size. Um, And across from them were the anti-Trump activists, uh, including some who were dressed largely in black with masks obscuring their faces, or Antifa. And as far as like the uh, civility of the event, things pretty much went downhill quickly. Uh, one activist began circling the Trump supporters chanting, Nazis go home. Nazis go home! Nazis go home! Nazis go home! And then later, a few people from Patriot Prayer appeared, uh, presumably from Portland. This included a man with a bullhorn who called the Antifa commie scum, among other things. Uh, a good part of the afternoon were people calling each other socialists, fascists, cowards, idiots, and things a lot more profane than I can, than I really care to share right here. And eventually, strangely enough, the groups began to mingle. There were some tight face-to-face shout-downs ensuing, and there were volunteers there to keep things from going a little too far, uh, including Robin Quirk. Uh, she has a background in psychology, and so there were preparations handy for really bad confrontations. We have chocolates, we have cigarettes. We've got a little chill-out safe spot back there where people can sit down in a chair, get some water. Just generally helping people redirect their energy if they're getting too worked up, but we don't stop people from expressing what they want to say. 
And again, I repeat that there were police there. There were uh, four officers in plain view and potentially some plainclothes officers in or around the crowd. There were EPD surveillance cameras trained on the gathering, and I even saw a Cahoots van and crew there for a spell, too. Sure, Brian, I actually drove by when I was out running errands on Saturday and saw you out there with your camera and your microphone in hand, and I really appreciated the coverage when I came in Sunday morning to be able to deliver that to our listeners. And you had some great um, cuts from both sides um, of the people that were there, and it did seem pretty peaceful, but I did wonder if it ever hit a boiling point between the pro-Trump and that anti-Trump crowd that you had out there. Yes, love. There was one moment, especially when a man in a MAGA hat and an Antifa member were just a few feet away from each other, yelling some pretty coarse insults at each other, and both men had their backers clustered behind them. Uh, And and it looked like something was really going to blow over. And then suddenly, in a flash of sweatpants and teal beanies, Margot Jennings and her troop Rise, Dance, Resist uh, appeared, and they began synchronized swaying and shaking to Aretha Franklin's respect. That must have been strange and incongruous. It was almost like a scene from a movie. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, people on either side of the street began moving along to the music. Uh, some were smiling, and perhaps some were just like, oh, you know, only in Eugene does this happen. But, you know, whatever the sentiments, uh, the tension was broken, and people were actually joining hands and circling the crowd, including uh, Jennings and an out-of-town Trump supporter, named Amy Howell. This is a little liberal, more than what I'm usually into, but I just think it's beautiful. Both sides are mingling and having a good time, and I can't think of a better way to stand up for freedom in America. So there was some tense political bickering, but I'd say all the chest beating and growling was upstaged by synchronized dancers shaking their booty. Uh, That's not to say there still weren't some earnest attempts Uh, between the warring factions to have a dialogue, but I will also say that on the sidelines, I probably came across at least three instances of people passionately but respectfully voicing their opinions without resorting to insults, slogans, threats, and trash talk. So it was kind of remarkable to see that. So for all the rancor that goes on at some of these events, it's still kind of nice to see that sometimes people are still willing to try to debate like grown-ups and even dance together. Uh, That mood may not necessarily last through Election Day, but in a world where even mentioning politics anymore can trigger some folks, I'll take it. It sounds like democracy right there. It does sound like Mm -hmm. democracy, Mm -hmm. so it gives one a little glimmer of hope still. Chris, what have you been working on this week? Well, a couple of stories I did this week. One was a story looking ahead to a bill that will apparently come up during the February legislative session. This one is being proposed by a Bend state representative, Sherry Helt, who, as you can imagine, going between Bend and the state capital in Salem, uh, that commute takes her across the mountains quite a lot, especially during the winter when the legislative session begins. And she noticed something that was actually drawn to her attention by a constituent, and then uh, Representative Helt observed it herself, in that when drivers pull to the side of the road in these mountainous areas to put chains on their tires, they're doing so right along the edge of the highway. Now, there's often a little bit of a pull-out area for vehicles, but even so, they're often just a a few feet away from moving traffic. Because, of course, sometimes not everybody has to put on their vehicles. Sometimes it only applies to truck drivers, or sometimes it's people without 
traction tires. And so they pull over to the side of the road, they put on their chains, they head up over the pass, and there's this moving traffic right behind you, um, maybe six or eight or ten feet away. And of course, in snowy conditions, somebody loses control. I mean, ten feet is nothing. A vehicle could slide off to the edge. So it's a potentially dangerous situation. So the idea that she's putting forth is to create special speed limits for these chain-up areas so that people who don't stop would still have to at least slow down to, you know, maybe it's 20 miles per hour or 25. It, it would depend on the, the situation. And these would be similar to school zone speed limits in that they'd only be in effect uh, during certain times. You know, for schools, it's only on school days, often only when school is opening up or, or letting out or when there's actually uh, children in the area. For these chain-up zone uh, speed limits, they would only be in effect when people are actually chaining up their vehicles. So, of course, drive through in the summer, you wouldn't have to slow down. Drive through when there's no snowstorm, and you wouldn't have to slow down. I mean, arguably, you should snow down, slow down in a uh, snowstorm anyway, but of course, many people don't. So, this is a, an idea that she's putting forth. She's working with ODOT right now to kind of work out the particulars of what that would actually look like, what the signs would say, where you would put the signs, and then that will go before lawmakers as a proposal in February. Another story I did this week was on the tentative contract agreement between nurses at Good Samaritan Regional Medical Center in Corvallis uh, and their employer, uh, the, the Good Samaritan Hospital there. Uh, these nurses have been working without a contract for over six months now and uh, stayed on the job, but uh, were getting a little bit antsy, I guess. They had already turned down one of the contract proposals. And uh, here's another one. This one has the blessing of the union, so it's expected to be approved when it goes before the 500 or so nurses in the union early next month. One of the sticking points these uh, nurses had with their employer was the amount of mandatory overtime that the nurses had to work, especially those in the uh, emergency room area of the hospital. And these were situations where they had to stick close to the hospital in case they were called in, like if there was a, a trauma case coming in or, or multiple, uh, you know, car accidents or, or whatever. And, uh, of course, they're, you know, happy to do that. That's part of their job. It's just that they were saying they, they were required to go on these mandatory overtime shifts more than the industry average. So apparently with some shuffling around of staffing policies and so forth, the hospital and the nurses' union were able to come to an agreement that uh, was amenable to both sides. And that was part of a larger package, of course. It had to do with with pay and other policies, too. But that was one of the sticking points. So that's going before the nurses' union for a vote. We should find out whether they approve that sometime in early February. All right. Thank you, Chris. So last Friday, there was a major development in the youth climate lawsuit that we've been following here at KLCC. A panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled the lawsuit filed by 21 young people against the United States over climate change should not go forward to trial. Now, this panel described their decision as reluctant. They stated that they actually agree with the premise of the case, that the government has known about the dangers of climate change for decades, and that it's human-caused. Um, the lawsuit, though, asked for a court to order the government to change the country's fossil fuel policies and make a plan to reverse the effects of climate change. Two of the judges said that's not something the courts have the power to do. 
A third judge on the panel said that it is. So lawyers for the plaintiffs say they want the full Court of Appeals to review this decision. And I spoke with lead plaintiff Kelsey Giuliana, who lives here in Eugene, and here's what she had to say about the ruling. On the one hand, you know, it feels like we've lost because we didn't get the ruling we expected and because we have to further wait for this case to move forward, wait to go to trial. But this case is actually probably in the best position it could be in right now because now we are presenting, we're preparing to present a case that was very, you know, reluctantly dismissed on only one grounds, which was the matter of redressability. You know, the courts actually agreed with us on all of our points. So um, the hope is that the full Ninth Circuit would actually allow the case to go forward to trial here in Eugene Federal Court. And Rachel, you've been following this case for how many years? Well, this federal um, lawsuit was filed in 2015, so I've been following it since then. Kelsey and another um, young person from Eugene, who's not as young anymore, they filed a state lawsuit almost 10 years ago. Oh, wow. So um, that lawsuit is also kind of hung up in the courts right now. It's in the Oregon Supreme Court right now. And uh, in that coverage, too, I mean, that case has been kind of bounced back and stalled, and so... Uh, this seems to be a, a very significant setback. It sounds like the defendants, though, aren't going to give up by any stretch. That's right. I mean, that's what that's what Kelsey said, and that's what her attorney told me as well, that they feel like, um, you know, this is not over. Yeah, it's been going on for so long, it's even crossed administrations. I know they had to change who they were actually bringing this against because they named the Obama administration initially and then had to change that to the Trump administration. That's right, and actually Kelsey said something about that. Governor Brown, you could have you could have settled this case a long time ago. Uh, Obama could have settled our federal case. Like what what is lacking here? Again, not a matter of belief. It's not about party politics. Uh, it's not even about understanding the critical nature of this issue. We everyone knows it's a serious issue about science and about people's rights to life. So we'll see what happens. We'll keep listening. And so, Love, um, you've been following the U of O women's basketball team's amazing season. Tell us what's going on. Amazing season, and the Beavers as well. I mean, both teams are doing incredibly well. You know, there was a Wall Street Journal headline this week that said the hottest player in college basketball is named Sabrina. And ESPN.com's big headline this week, why Sabrina Ionescu is the best player in women's college basketball. Uh, that senior point guard for Oregon has been getting shout-outs on Twitter from LeBron James, who tweeted her a little goat for the, uh, you know, greatest of all time. <laughs> Steph Curry, other NBA players. Kobe Bryant has actually been going to Ducks games at USC and Long Beach State to see her in action. Um, so she's getting quite a bit of recognition. Um, so if you don't know anything about Sabrina Ionescu, I'll just give you a brief background. She's 22 years old. She's a daughter of Romanian immigrants. She grew up in the Bay Area. She has a twin brother, Eddie, who played basketball for the San Francisco City College and just transferred to Oregon this year and is on the Oregon men's team. He hasn't seen much time yet, but he is here in Eugene with her, which is great because her parents come to quite a few of her home games as well. So she and her brother Eddie used to spend a lot of time playing pickup basketball in the parks around Walnut Creek where she grew up. And she realized quickly that if they would play with other players on their own team, those pickup players wouldn't pass to her. She was usually the only girl that was out there. She realized if she wanted to get the ball, she had to learn to rebound. So she was rebounding 
missed shots from players on her own little pickup team and then on the other end of the court as well. So she became this rebounding powerhouse. She really learned to play basketball on the streets, which is a totally different style of play. She also did play club and travel basketball. But what she learned, she said in many interviews by being out there in these pickup games in the park, is that there wasn't a coach. There was no one to turn to and say, what should I do? So she had to figure that out herself. So Kelly Graves and the uh, athletic team of the women's basketball coaching staff are excellent in their coaching, but Sabrina doesn't really rely on that. She has to, in the moment, see what's going on and make those decisions. And her teammates have learned to read her so well. So in her fourth year there, it's really it's really come together. And so now we've seen her just this, I mean, we're still in January, but just in this 2020 year, she had her 22nd triple-double earlier this month. She dropped 37 points in Oregon's 87 to 55 win over Stanford last week. Wow. It's it's just amazing. So just this week she is the Pac-12 player of the week for the second time this season and she's the National College Women's Basketball Player of the Week. She is the all-time leading Oregon scorer. That's for men or women. She is actually tied at this moment with 938 Pac-12 all-time assists. And that record is held by Gary Payton, who played at Oregon State from 87 to 1990. So for those of us who aren't in the know, what is a triple-double? I know it's hard with sports because you can get into lingo and you just start assuming that everybody knows what that means. But a triple-double is where one player has double-digit points, rebounds, and assists in a single game. So it's pretty hard to come by. Uh, a lot of players will get double-doubles, you know, and that's usually on rebounds and points. But to have rebounds, points, and assists all in one game, uh, it's pretty incredible. And that she has 22 has blown the record out of the water. Okay, well, thanks for explaining that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you know. Um, up next for the Ducks is this big Civil War series this weekend. So you can bet if she just gets one more assist, she'll become all-time leader for assists in the Pac-12. Boy, that gives people another reason to watch that I game. mean, it's amazing. All of this mm-hmm. is going on. So she, along with other Duck standouts, uh, Ruthie Hebert and Satu Savali, are averaging a combined 49.9 points per game. So just the wow. three of them. I mean, it's amazing. Well, they do have their work cut out for them this week, though, because uh, they have a strong number seven Oregon State team. Uh, they have the Pac-12's leading rebounders, Michaela Pivik. Kennedy Brown's been doing some good work there, too. And then Beaver Destiny Slocum scored a career-high 26 points against Stanford last week in Corvallis. Um, you know, one of the things that came to light this week as well, other headlines, over 101,000 seats have been filled at Matthew Knight Arena this year. That's the top for women's basketball across the nation. So Duck fans are showing up. Beaver fans are really turning out at Gill Coliseum in Corvallis. Uh, just right now, there's a true love and interest for these women and the game they're playing. With all of these things we're talking about, you know, the climate lawsuit and these pro-Trump, anti-Trump rallies and the goings-on in the Oregon legislature, to have something like women's college basketball be making headlines right now, um, I think that it's really bringing a lot of people together. And then finally, you know, after last year, Oregon won the Pac-12 regular season, and then they lost the, the Pac-12 tournament to Stanford. And so last year, after everything was said and done, after the, the big tournament, um, Sabrina wrote a powerful, quote, letter to Ducks Nation, she called it. She was announcing she'd come back for her senior year. She called it unfinished business. 
They've had two trips to the Elite Eight and one trip to the Final Four, so she said there's only one thing left, and that's to make it to the championship game. So her sights are set there. The entire Duck Nation will be turning out sold-out crowds both Friday night in Eugene and Sunday in Corvallis. I will be there tomorrow night. I will have the results for you on Saturday morning for Weekend Edition and Monday morning on Morning Edition, but we are definitely following them. Um, Something to smile about in Eugene and Corvallis. Stay tuned. Absolutely. And go ducks. Go ducks and beavers. <laughs> I mean these I mean these are, you know, yes, we are in Eugene. I am a duck and beaver fan. Used to live closer <laughs> to Corvallis, used to go to every home um, Oregon State volleyball game. Now we we do that here in Eugene just because it's close, but it's uh, something to root for in the the South Willamette Valley and the state of Oregon and really eyes of the nation are on this these games this weekend. Boy, that's really fantastic. This is the Northwest Passage. We'll be right back. Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank team members have experience in the unique challenges of multiple industries, from healthcare to manufacturing. Learn more about their services for the business community at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule, member FDIC. This is the Northwest Passage podcast on KLCC. I'm Rachel McDonald with Brian Bull, Love Cross, and Chris Lehman. And now it's time for us to talk about something from the week's news or just that we've been paying attention to this week. Chris, do you want to start? Well, one thing I saw this week has to do with the weather. And usually when we think about weather in Oregon at this time of year, we think about rain or possibly snow up in the mountains. But uh, we had uh, an actual tornado in Oregon this month. It's uh, very unusual for the month of January. I mean, you don't even think about tornadoes in Oregon, but they do come up now and then. But this tornado had hit the Oregon coast near Manzanita. You might not have heard about it because it didn't cause any injuries. It was the lowest level of uh, confirmed tornado on the scale that they use. It damaged a couple of houses, um, but nobody uh, is out of a home. It can all be repaired, that kind of thing. Um, But it's only the third confirmed January tornado in Oregon in the past 100 years. So it really is a rare thing. It's the first January Oregon tornado tornado since 1998. That one was in Seaside, Oregon. Before that, you have to go all the way back to 1953 in Corvallis. So January, not really a tornado month in Oregon, but we had a little one this week. Uh, Again, not very much damage, but uh, most Oregon tornadoes, uh, when they do happen, tend to happen, uh, believe it or not, in the fall. Uh, September, October uh, are the two biggest months for tornadoes in Oregon. That's the kind of thing that gets those weather watchers super excited because it's out of the normal for them. Yeah. And the last time a uh, tornado struck Manzanita was in October 2016, because okay. I reported on it. Oh. And uh, yeah, it was pretty light damage compared to what we normally think of a uh, tornado. But yeah, it's still pretty uh, disruptive. There was a lot of debris and phone poles down and down mm. trees. Wow. Good times. Why don't we go to you, love? So, so something a little more serious I've been paying attention to, you know, we had the first known case of coronavirus coming into the United States. That was someone returning to Seattle after being in that province in China that has seen that spread. So um, no need for panic at this point. You know, you have to keep realistic about this. Uh, far more people are dying from flu this year than what they would anticipate something like this to bring. But it's just something still to be uh, keeping an eye on as someone who's reporting the news. And then also uh, more locally in 
Portland. The Jeremy Christian trial began this week. Um, our colleagues at Oregon Public Broadcasting are all over that. And so we'll be continuing to follow that for you um, in the weeks to come. Yeah, who knows how that will go. So. And in business news, a very notable death has occurred just this past day. Uh, at 104 years old, Mr. Peanut has died. In a preview of the Super Bowl commercial that will be running, apparently he falls to his death after no. merci mercifully uh, sacrificing himself to save the lives of Wesley Snipes and Matt Walsh. Uh, there's already skepticism, though, because uh, like Superman and many other icons, people are saying he'll be back. <laughs> In the form of peanut butter, I mean, after a fall like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Some years back, they had the uh, Mr. Peanut stunt double commercial run, and every time his stunt double got flattened, a little jar of planter's peanut butter popped up in its place. So he'll will, be back. I'm, what will they come up with next? What will they come I up know. with next? Crazy Madison Avenue. <laughs> well, for um, as we're following the um, impeachment hearing in the Senate, um, we've heard about some very strict strict rules about um, what senators can and can't do within the Senate chambers. Um, we've heard that they can't have their phones with them. They have to maintain silence and decorum. And also, um, we heard from a reporter who spoke with Florida Senator Rick Scott that senators are only allowed to drink water and milk on the floor. <laughs> hmm. And so NPR looked into this. They spoke with a Senate historian emeritus, Don Ritchie, who um, said that these rules um, go back to um, a manual that was put together actually by Thomas Jefferson, who apparently had some spare time, and he came up with a rules manual for the Senate. Apparently, senators were allowed to drink milk, and there are accounts of senators conducting filibusters and ordering milk. So I think the idea was that milk would give them a little more energy for their filibusters. And in one case, a uh, senator ordered a milkshake, um, but then there was speculation that it may have been eggnog that was possibly spoiled by the Washington heat. So um, <laughs> wow. apparently during this impeachment hearing that is in session right now, um, there have been a couple senators seen drinking milk, including Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. Well, I bet the milk lobby's happy about that. But does almond milk, soy milk, you know, I mean, oat milk, oh. yeah. I mean, and what about the kombucha lobby? I mean, why wouldn't they be? I mean, come on. And no. could you cheat and get a latte? Uh, really? Hmm. Steamed milk? There you hey, go. it's milk. <laughs> does a body good. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this week's Northwest Passage podcast. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm news reporter Brian Bull. And you hear me on the weekend mornings. I'm Love Cross. And I'm reporter Chris Lehman. Bye. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC.